Hello, this is Kelly McGee, and today's date is October the 25th, 2020, and I'm going to play for you a Jordan Peterson. Um, he is um, an anomaly, to say the least, and I'm trying to figure him out, so if you can lend a hand, I'd appreciate it. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 35 of the Jordan B. Peterson Podcast. I'm Michaela Peterson, Dad's daughter and collaborator. Today's episode is a 12 Rules for Life lecture, recorded in Oslo on November 9th, 2018. This is a lecture on victimization that I really enjoyed. Just a heads up, we needed to cancel the London event on November 30th. Dad still needs time to recover, and I couldn't put him through the stress of traveling and performing quite yet. I really hope this doesn't disrupt people's plans too badly, we're definitely rescheduling it. We're really sorry for the disruption, but healing comes first. Then we'll be back at it. On a completely unrelated note, I've been doing NAD IV transfusions. I read ads for Elysium, which has a product that increases NAD, so you may have heard about NAD on this podcast. Joe Rogan also had an episode with a Harvard professor named David Sinclair about NAD. Anyway, I've had four of the IV infusions, and oh my god, I've tried a lot of weird things in the last four years for healing my autoimmune disorder, and nothing other than this all-meat diet has been as effective as these infusions. It's as if my entire body is filled with energy. My mood is more varied, more highs and more lows, but it's better. Usually I'm just stable like a python or a lion, hence the name the lion diet, but this is better, I think. I'll be updating people on it on my YouTube channel, Michaela Peterson on YouTube and on Instagram. I really think there's something to this. Dad's going to give it a shot next week. I hope you enjoy this episode. Being a Victim, a Jordan B. Peterson 12 Rules for Life lecture. Thank you, everyone. It's only been a week since I've been here. Something I've never said before about Oslo. Uh, so... I had a bit of a conundrum today because I've been in Europe for, I think this is the 13th lecture, and there's only 12 rules. And so, see, when I, I've gone through the rules many ways in the lectures that I've delivered, sometimes one at a time, sometimes mix and match three or four of them to play them off each other. And uh, when I came to Europe this time, I thought I'd go through them backwards, and I landed on number one last night in two nights ago in Birmingham, and so I didn't know what to talk about tonight. So <laughs> I thought I would do something kind of more universal and more universal in that it's not tied to a specific rule, and deeper in that. I would like to go into the substructure of what I've been thinking about. And so I wrote this book a long time ago called Maps of Meaning. It was published in 1999, but I've been writing it since 1985. And uh, I spent a lot of time on that book, um, for what it's worth. And it sort of laid the groundwork, I would say, for all the lectures that I put on YouTube 
and then for this 12 rules book and it took me 30 years of lecturing and working on those ideas until they became until I became fluent enough in discussing them so that they became accessible say in written form to a larger audience but 12 rules is still grounded in the same metaphysical substructure that I laid out in Maps of Meaning and I would say discovered rather than invented I hope um, the tension between those discovering invention is is real and but I think I discovered something and certainly not by myself so I'm going to lay out a few propositions I want to talk to you tonight about the idea of victimization like that's the central theme you might not know that for a while because I'm going to wander around a fairly large territory before we get back to that concept but I, I want to go deep into that idea and so you know ideas ideas have depth like literature has depth or art has depth and it's an interesting metaphor because it isn't obvious what it means that something can be deep or shallow but we know what that means you know you can have a shallow conversation with someone and then you think well it wasn't really about anything then if you have a deep conversation well somehow it's about everything and and so and so depth has to do with 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 significance and well profundity is another way of thinking about but that's just another way of thinking about depth the deeper a conversation is the more it's about every the more it's about a topic that everything relies on so our thinking is hierarchical and each thought depends on each layer of thought depends on a layer of thought underneath that that's more fundamental and then that depends on the layer of thought under that that's more fundamental and so on all the way down to the to the bottom whatever the bottom is and it's not easy to find the bottom that because we'd have to get to the bottom of ourselves and that's very that's a very long way down the bottom of ourselves and it's not something that we can easily articulate because we're complicated and so we're unfathomable in some sense and so so I want to talk to you about as far down to the bottom as I've been able to get so the first thing I'm gonna think talk about this I'm gonna take a stance that's essentially biological I think in evolutionary terms fundamentally the time span over which I consider human development is well it's it's it extends over I would say millions of years because because that is how I think about people because I think in an evolutionary sense and I take that very seriously we're very old creatures you know we have DNA within us that has been around for three and a half billion years and that's a very long time and so that's part of what gives us that depth now as individuals we're rather evanescent you know we don't last that long but but there are parts of us that are truly for all intents and purposes immortal and there are levels of our being that have been shaped all of the levels of our being have been shaped over unimaginable spans of time and that's made us what what we are and and to understand people properly you need that deep biological orientation so you don't have enough respect for what you're looking at otherwise 
unless you have some sense of the immense spans of time that you're dealing you know you every single one of you people are the descendants of life that has managed to replicate itself without failure for three and a half billion years you know how unlikely that is it's just it's impossible that each of you are here that's so incredibly unlikely over that extended span of time that there could be that much success that you could actually exist it's just a staggering miracle of impossibility and that's only one of many staggering miracles of impossibility now you know that human beings have only been looking at the world as if it was a place of objective reality for a short period of time now you can quibble about how long that's been the case you know if you're my sense is it's about 500 years it's about since the time of francis bacon and descartes and and but you could push it back you could say well we started to conceptualize something approximating an objective reality perhaps back at the time when philosophical discussion was first put forward as a mode of being so perhaps you could stretch it all the way back to the greeks that's more rationality i would say than ob than objective thinking i would say it's it's a half millennia is more accurate and so you've got to think about what that means is we've only been thinking scientifically because science science is a real method right it's a very formal method and and it's new it's unbelievably powerful but it's unbelievably new we've only been thinking that way for 500 years and most people still don't think that way it's actually very difficult to think scientifically in fact scientists can't even do it which is why you have peer review if you're a scientist because if you're a great scientist you would need peer review because you just write your paper and it would be properly objective and properly laid out but you need peer review because your peers have to find out if you use the method right and if you use the rationale right and and then if you didn't let your biases interfere with your results to too great a degree so even if you're a scientist and a trained scientist other scientists still have to like hit you continually with a stick to and a fairly thick one to make sure that you stay thinking scientifically and and it takes a long time to be trained to think that way so so the reason i'm saying that is because that isn't the way that we think that isn't the way that human beings think we think some other way and obviously that way works because we made it all the way to 500 years ago with that other mode of thinking, whatever that is. Now, psychologists have been very interested in part of this mode of thinking, a certain group of psychologists. They study um, a form of thinking called social cognition. And social cognition is thinking about other people. And I believe that our fundamental cognitive architecture is social cognitive okay so why well first of all you got to think about what the environment you know when you think about the environment you think about nature and maybe you've got like especially if you're sort of romantic you have like a picture of a french impressionist landscape in your imagination it's like there's nature it's like and that's the environment it's like that's not the environment the environment's a very strange abstraction but the environment is what confronts you most of the time and the environment is even more technically what what selects for reproduction over long spans of time that's really what the environment is that's really what nature is and for human beings nature is culture because we're social creatures we we're not individual creatures we are but 
but but we're but we but we we do we're not isolated individual creatures we're not like male grizzly bears that just wander around alone except for short periods of time i mean look look at here you all are in a big group you know and you have your friends and you have your family and like you're nested in groups of all sorts so you're deeply social and you've been deeply social for god only knows how long millions of years you could go back seven million years let's say that that's a fair estimate although it's 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 a it's an underestimate that's approximately when we separated from the the ancestor that we shared with chimpanzees you can kind of tell how long ago that was if you're a geneticist because you can mix the dna of two species together and they'll half half strands and the strands will bond and the degree to which the this is an old technology but it's an easy way to explain it the closer the relationship between the species the tighter the cross species dna will bond and the more energy it takes in the form of heat to separate the strands and so you can get a pretty good estimate of genetic um, relatedness now they have better techniques than that but doesn't matter that was used for a long time and then you can calculate the similarity and the difference and if you know something about how stable mutation rates are and we know something about how stable they are then you can calculate over what span of time mutation rate would have had to occur to produce that much difference not only mutation but genetic alteration in general and then you can estimate how long ago the divergence was and so with chimps it seems to be about seven million years even chimps are highly social right they exist in structured hierarchies they have troops you know they have their 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 mother child pairings and they exist in troops inside hierarchies and so and it's the same for most primates most primates are very social creatures not all of them but most of them and the ones that we're closely related to are highly social and so there's an idea that that the fundamental architecture of our cognitive ability including our perception is actually it actually evolved to conceptualize social relationships because you think well what's your environment well mostly it's other people you know it's other it's other it's other people it's not nature and certainly not nature as an objective storehouse of of riches that could be investigated scientifically because that's a new idea you know and you know that too because you've seen the rate of technology just expand exponentially since the dawn of the scientific revolution right so people were able to exploit nature so to speak prior to the dawn of the scientific revolution but we've got way better at it since we developed this new methodology but that shouldn't fool you into thinking that that's how we think because that isn't how we think and it's certainly not how animals think so and there's plenty of affinity between our basic perceptual structures and the basic perceptual structures of animals now it's very important if you're a social animal to keep track of what all the other social animals are doing okay i'm going to stop right here and ask you a question do you remember what he originally wanted to talk about so now imagine this so here's another proposition so 
one of the things we know about evolution is that it's a pretty conservative process. So if evolution manages to cobble something together, let's say, that works, then it, it tends to stick with it. So I, I saw an interesting example of this. I went to the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, and they have a collection of mammalian skeletons there. It's like a skeleton zoo. And it's really a cool place to see, because what you see is just endless variations on a theme. You know, like a bat and a human being don't look very much the same when you see like a bat and a human being. But when you see a bat skeleton and you see a human being skeleton, you think, oh, they're exactly the same. The bat has longer fingers, but the skeletal structure is exactly the same. You can even see it in whales, although in whales it's modified a lot. But it's still basically the same skeletal plan. It's like all this diversity of mammals, same skeletal plan, just extensions and you can you can take a human skull and, and just transform it in terms of its morphology into a chimp skull without very much problem at all without without with only with only quantitative adjustments and so in fact a chimpanzee skull an infant chimpanzee skull looks almost exactly the same as an adult human skull it's very cool that's a consequence of an evolutionary phenomenon called neoteny which is the tendency of animals over time to evolve toward their juvenile, uh, to, toward their juvenile form, and so human beings are, in some sense, chimps that maintain their juvenile nature. So that's quite interesting. Even the morphology. So, so in any case, evolution is a conservative process, and so once you have a, have, once you have something that that works well enough so that you can reproduce, you keep it and you tinker with it that's it but you keep it and so once we developed the perceptual architecture to understand the social world we built our understanding of the world beyond the social world on top of that so 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 what that means now you kind of know this already you know think about this as a strange this is a strange fact um when you, when you read stories to your kids, your little kids, you know, it's very common that all the things in the picture books, this is for really little kids, are animated, right? Cars have faces, trains have faces, the moon has a face, the sun has a face, like the tree has a face. Everything is, everything manifests itself in, in, in animated form. That's a good way of thinking about it. And it's not exactly like the world is personified for a child. Because that implies that the world, the child sees the world and then imposes this personification on top of it. But that isn't what happens. What happens is the child sees the world as if it's personified and only with great difficulty separates out the idea that, well, there's an objective reality that doesn't have a personality. So the perception of the world as personality is primary. Now that's really worth knowing because one of the things that's kind of mysterious about to, to modern people is what were all the ancients thinking about when they were thinking about gods? It's like, because we, even if some of us have the remnants of religious belief, it's usually a monotheism. It isn't like there's a god of the bedroom and a god of the, you know, the altar and like there was in Rome, there was a god for everything. Everything had this personified form think well the Romans personified everything it's no no they didn't they saw the world as if it was a collection of personalities that was their mode of cognition and they had no other way of doing it 
And, and it took us forever to even start to hypothesize that there was a kind of a dead material world that, that didn't have an animating spirit. You know, and we're still not sure that that's true. But treating it that way has turned out to be an extraordinarily powerful technology. Might kill us all still. Well, it might. You know, that, that's also something to think about. I mean, the scientific mode of thinking is unbelievably powerful, but, you know, you want to be careful with what's unbelievably powerful. So we've already created a fair number of things that could do us in quite handily. So it might have been better if we would have just stuck with the personification and left the technology behind. But, but I, I'm, not saying that the, I'm not saying I believe that, but you can make a case for it. You know, deviating from that age-old mode of apprehension is something that certainly has its dangers. Okay, so, so we, we perceive the world in a personified manner and only with difficulty detached from that so that we can be trained as scientists. And, and even then, we have to do that collectively because it's so difficult. So then the question is, well, two questions. The first would be, well, what is the nature of the personified world that we perceive? And the second is, why does it work? Like if the world isn't personified, then why does our ability to see it that way work? Well, I, I think the reason it works is because most of what we interact with really is other people. You know, and so if you, if you tend to see things as personified, that works because 95% of what you do is with yourself, with your partner, with other people. And so, and you know, even if you conceptualize the state, you know, people will go look at the Queen of England when you think, well, why? Well, she embodies the state. So it's really easy for people to personify the state and they see the queen. And I mean, the queen is just a person, but she's the queen at the same time. And so she's just a person and she's something else at the same time. And when you go to look at the queen, you don't really go to look at the person. You can, you can just go across the street and look at a person. You go look at the queen. And you actually see the queen, which is a strange thing, because the queen is just a person. And what you see is the personification of the state. You know, and, 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 and this is a very deep perception. So, you know, Queen Elizabeth, for example, in, in England is getting quite old. And at some point, she'll pass away. And the entire nation will grieve for that. And, and that's an that's a, that's a, that's a indication of how powerful that proclivity to perceive personification actually is and you know if we talk about a state or a country we often talk about it as if it's an individual and no one finds that strange you know you say that you you treat the you treat the collective as if it's an individual with all of the attributes of an individual and that's also partly why states can get angry at each other so quickly because the same relationship that might obtain between two individuals can easily be used to represent the relationship between two states and so and you know that makes a certain amount of sense because a state is a collective of people but then by the same token it doesn't make any sense at all because the state is something that's quite different from an individual it doesn't matter what matters is that's how we see the world i think that's part of the reason why we developed the idea of a monotheistic god and this isn't a metaphysical statement, by the way, and it's not a religious statement, okay? I'm just speaking as a biologist here, an evolutionary biologist. We leave the metaphysics out of this for the time being.
What's a good way of representing the collective other? Well, judgmental father. That's pretty damn good. Why? Well, you know that you extend across time, and so, and then you face a collective, that's all the people that you know, and they track your reputation across time, that collective, and they do a damn good job of it. People are unbelievably good at remembering ethical transgressions. You can destroy your reputation very rapidly. In fact, there are evolutionary psychologists who think we have a specific cognitive module just to remember getting screwed over. And we don't forget. And so, so you might imagine that you need to conduct yourself as if there's a great being, which would be the personification of the collective, watching you all the time and writing down everything you do in a great book in the sky. Because that is essentially the relationship that you have with other people across time. You know, so I figured this out. I wrote about this a bit in 12 Rules. When I was thinking about hunting, it's like if you're a hunter, and let's say a Stone Age hunter, you might say, well, what's the purpose of hunting? And the answer is, well, to obtain food, right? So the greatest hunter is someone who is the most effective at obtaining food. It's like, okay, so maybe that's the strongest spear thrower or the bravest person who can stand up against a mammoth with a spear. That's a brave person, right? <laughs> you're just an arctic monkey and you're after a mammoth with a stick, man. That's, there's some courage in that. And like that's mammoth for today and mammoth for next week, but you still stuck with the problem of next month. And so then you might say, well, what's the greatest way to be a great hunter? And the answer might be, well, not only to be able to hunt, but to be able to share. So you bring something down and it's more than you need and then you distribute it among the people that you're around and then you distribute that. It's, you trade the, the food itself for a moral obligation in the form of promises from others. And so if you're effective at what you do and you share, then you can store the excess in the form of promises from others. And so basically what you're doing is trading, you're trading for your reputation. And so then you might say that it's actually even better, it's better to have the reputation of being a great and generous hunter than it is just to be good at taking down an animal. And that's really worth thinking about because what it means is that even to be a hunter, in the, in the truest sense, across a long span of time, means that you're bargaining in some sense with the future. You have to treat the other people around you in your tribe properly in order to store any excess value across any reasonable amount of time. Well, and, and if you think about that in some sense as a contract with a patriarchal god, if, if that's the way that, 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 that you imagine that relationship, then it's going to work. It's your... You don't sully your reputation if you want to if you want to eat forever. And okay, so twenty six minutes into his lecture, he brings up the word patriot, patriotical. So just remember that, that can easily be abstracted up into an, an ethical principle that goes beyond mere the mere provision of food. Because as, 
as it has been said, man does not live by bread alone. And so it could easily be that the greatest hunter is someone who pursues the most ethical aim, right? Who aims at the most ethical target. And so, well, that's, that's a bit of a, a casual, quick outline of how the notion of monotheism could emerge from a biological perspective. It's a projection of the collective personality of future society into one entity and the establishment of a relationship with that. You know, and maybe the father is a good metaphor for that because fathers can be rather judgmental. And so if you can use the image of the father to represent the judgmental crowd, then you have a bridge between what you've already experienced as a child and, and this more abstract ethical relationship that you have to establish with the collective. So anyways, my point is, well, there's more to it too, because it, it also justifies the idea of sacrifice in some sense, because, you know, to sacrifice is also to ensure the future, is to let go of something in the present that's of value, so that you can obtain something of value in the future. And who do you sacrifice to? Well, you know, if I work now and you, you pay me and I put my money in the bank, then what I've done is sacrificed my immediate gratification to the promise of the future. Well, that, that we figured that out religiously to begin with, with the idea of sacrifice. And so, and then there's a deep idea there, which is that you can, in fact, forego what's pleasurable in the present to ensure the stability of the future. And you do that by establishing a certain kind of relationship with a, with a, with a, with a personification of the collective. Straight biological rationale. And I'm not saying that that accounts for monotheism in its totality, because I don't believe it does. But, but as a straight biological rationale, it's not a bad start. But it also shows you how that kind of thinking can actually be practically useful, can be evolutionarily significant. Lots of biologists, many of them, are enlightenment types, evolutionary biologists. And you actually can't be an enlightenment type and an evolutionary biologist because if you're an enlightenment type, you think over spans of like 200 or 300 years. And if you're an evolutionary biologist, you think over spans of like 100 million years or longer. And so the conclusions you draw aren't the same. Um, it's certainly plausible. See, the enlightenment types like to think of the religious impulse as something that's rather shallow, secondary consequence of higher order human cognition. And I think that's just, that's just a non-starter. It's just seriously wrong. It's exactly backwards, is that higher order human cognition, to the degree that we have that capacity for abstract rationality, it's embedded in something far, far, far more ancient and deeper that has this personified structure and that has something approximating a religious grammar. And so they've got the cart before the horse. And then some people like Nietzsche knew that, Dostoevsky as well, pretty much puzzled that out by the, by the, by the latter part of the 1800s, um, Nietzsche in particular. So, so anyways, that's the way I look at things. And so I think that, you know, we live in a, we live in a conceptual structure that's personified and what, what comes out of that are the stories of the interactions between these personified entities and then what, le what sits on top of that is our abstract moral, re our abstract practical and moral reasoning. And even nested within that is our scientific enterprise. So that's, that's the hierarchy of cognitive structure as far as I can tell.
And I think the evidence for that is very strong. Um, certainly some of the evidence for that is our overwhelming love of stories and the, the, the self-evident proposition that we're so deeply, we're so deep in our relationship with stories that we can, we can, we can absorb information that way through pure enjoyment, right? I mean, if you go to listen to a very difficult lecture, for example, on a very abstract topic, you may really have to concentrate. You read a scientific paper, the same thing. It doesn't just pull you in. But if you go see a well-crafted movie or you read a well-crafted piece of fiction, it's like not only is it in some sense effortless, it's also unbelievably enjoyable. And what that shows you is that there's an affinity between your the biology of your attentional structures and the form itself. And that shows you how old that form of knowledge provision really is. It's also grounded in imitation. One of the things that's very interesting about human beings that's underestimated in terms of what differentiates us from animals is we're unbelievably imitative. You know, you hear monkey see, monkey do, right? It's like, no, wrong. Even higher order primates, even chimpanzees transmit virtually nothing through imitation. They cannot copy one another. Whereas us, man, we're so good at that. It's just absolutely unbelievable. Like we can mimic each other's posture. You know, a good comic can mimic voice, intonation, character. Like we can run other people as a representation on the computational platform of our body in a miraculous manner. And so we're unbelievably good at moving information from one person to another merely through imitation. That's obviously in large part how children learn. And then we can even do that abstractly because when we tell a story or, or lay out a movie or a, or a play or something like that, what we're doing is we're, we're actually copying multiple people to make the character in the drama because you don't want to just see you don't want to go see a play where it's exactly what you did with your family at breakfast it's like no one wants to see that what you want to see is like a meta character so it'd be a character composed of many characters or a set of characters composed of many characters acting out something deep and so you know if you watch a i don't know was breaking bad popular in norway okay so there's some pretty good bad guys in breaking bad it's like they're they're not your ordinary bad guys. They're sort of super bad guys. They're, they're the essence of evil, right? Not just the common sort of boring second-rate evil that you run across in day-to-day -day life. It's sort of purified. And that makes it much more interesting and much more salutary, much more powerful. You see that in great literature, too. In Dostoevsky's books, for example, the characters are bigger than life, right? And, and they have to be because they wouldn't capture your attention. And so they're abstractions of personality away from normality. They're condensations. That's another way of thinking about it. So it's, it's more... See, I think of fiction not as, as, as the opposite of fact, but as hyper-reality. It's more real than real. It's super-reality. And, and that's partly why fiction is so useful for us. It's a form of abstraction, and abstraction can be very real. Numbers are abstract, and they're very, very real. You know something about numbers, it makes you very powerful and allows you to get a grip on the world. And abs the abstractions that we produce in fiction have the same power. And the ultimate abstractions of fiction are religious representations. That's another way of thinking about it. So anyways, you might ask yourself, well, what are these fundamental personifications? And this, this I figured out mostly from reading the psychoanalysts, especially Carl Jung, Freud a fair bit, 
And also another person named Eric Neumann, who should be way better known than he is. It would be much better for Western civilization if the literary departments, especially at Yale, had turned to Eric Neumann to flesh out their literary criticism instead of Derrida and Foucault. Because Newman got it right, and that was back in the 1950s. And, and, and Camille Pellia has just written, she wrote an essay about that about 20 years ago, saying the same thing about Eric Neumann. And he wrote a great book called The Origins and History of Consciousness. It's a very hard book. It's on my reading list on my website. I'd highly recommend it. It's a great book. It's the book that Carl Jung wrote a foreword to and said that he wished he would have written, which is a hell of a thing to say. Um, and Neumann was one of his students. Uh, they also wrote another book called The Great Mother, which is also a great book. It's an analysis of, of the fundamental cognitive category, cognitive perceptual category of the feminine. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant book. And uh, it, it outlines the positive feminine and the negative feminine and, and in a very thorough and compelling and somewhat terrifying manner. And so it's a great book. And it's great. Okay. So now he's talking about books. Now he's uh, rested on the um, book about women, positive and negative. Now, I would expect that, okay, it's uh, 35 minutes in. He'll spend a good 45 minutes on this. Because it describes the perceptual architecture of the human psyche, but it also gives you a template that you can use to investigate the structure of literature and ideology. And so what I would say about ideo people, what I, one of the things I've tried to do for years is to inoculate my students against ideology. And sometimes I receive the criticism is, well, how do you know that your inoculation isn't just another ideology, which is a perfectly reasonable um, potential criticism, although it happens in this case to be seriously wrong. Um, and I'll try to outline my case for that. So part of the reason that I believe that the system that I derived in part from the psychoanalytic thinkers that I, that I just described, who were responding, by the way, to Nietzsche's challenge about the death of God, that, that's, the, that's the intellectual pathway. Nietzsche in the late 1800s announced the death of God, right? The collapse of, of, our, of, of the Westerners' straightforward belief in, in, in the Judeo-Christian substructure of our culture, right? And perhaps as a consequence of the developing tension between science, rationality, and, and traditional belief. And Nietzsche was not celebrating that when he announced the death of God. He knew it would be an absolute bloody catastrophe that what it would produce was on the one hand an absolutely soul-devouring nihilism and on the other uh, incredible proclivity for possession by totalitarian ideology and he laid that all out by about 1850 in an amazing feat of, of precognition and Nietzsche's solution to that was that we would have to become like gods ourselves that we would have to create our own values and Jung, for example, Carl Jung was a very astute student of Nietzsche, at least as much as a student of Freud. He certainly took from Freud the idea of the act of unconscious, which was a very crucial, crucial discovery. But Nietzsche, well, Jung, for example, did a seminar on Thus Spake Zarathustra, which is one of Nietzsche's 
most famous but also most impenetrable books and certainly not the one I would recommend that beginners to Nietzsche start with. It's like the last book of his you should read. Um, Jung did a seminar on Nietzsche that, if I remember correctly, was 2,700 pages long and it only covered the first third of the book. So, yeah, so that's quite something. Now, so, see, what, what Freud determined, this is the interesting thing about Freud, and, and modern psychologists, especially the cognitive types, have not taken this seriously enough. Freud figured out that the subcomponents of your psyche are personalities. They're alive. So you're a unity, but you're a, you're a diverse, and you're a diverse, you're a unity that's composed of a diverse plurality. And the plural things that you're made of are best conceptualized as active personalities, not as drives and not as deterministic mechanisms, but as things that have their own imagination and their own thoughts and their own rationale and in Nietzsche's terminology, even their own philosophy. Nietzschean quote, every drive attempts to philosophize in its spirit. And you all, you all know that. You all know that perfectly well because that accounts in some sense for that sense of profound disunity that you often experience in your own life. You know, maybe you're overwhelmingly attracted erotically to someone and you make a complete bloody fool out of yourself and you can't stop. You tell yourself you're making a complete fool of yourself and, and counterproductively as well. It's not like it's even working, but oh no, you can't stop yourself, man. That thing has you, right? That, that, that eros. That's a personality, that's an old one. It's a transcendent and divine personality and it inhabits you and now and then you come under its sway and good luck regulating that. And so the same thing happens when you fall under the, the sway of rage. You get angry, right? And some of you are more prone to that than others and have it less integrated than others. And God, who God only knows what you might do when you're angry, depends on how disintegrated you are. You might kill someone and then and then re regret that for the rest of your life. At least you might say terrible things to people that you love because in the heat of that rage, all you can see about them is every way that they're wrong and all the ways that they should be defeated and all the ways that you're right. And then you wake up out of that afterwards and you think, what the hell was I thinking? It's like, no, something was thinking in you and it's not well integrated into you. And now and then it gets control. And so, and so that's, a, that's a Freudian observation. It's brilliant. And I know that, that rationalist cognitive psychologist types who like to think of the brain as something like an information processing machine, think of us like computers. They, they, they've just never come to terms with the psychoanalytic reality that you're, uh, you're, the habit of, you're the habitation place of multiple spirits. And perhaps you can, you can, what would you say, meld those together into a functioning unity with a fair bit of moral effort and difficulty, but it's no trivial thing, and you better have help to do it. And you can see this in little kids, especially in two-year-olds, you know, who are very behaviorally dysregulated. First they're angry, then they're crying, then they're laughing, then they're hungry, then they're hot, then they're cold, then they're tired. Then they're running around enthusiastic beyond belief. And like, all of that can happen in 10 minutes. And, and so it's just one motivational state after the other. And, and then they're curious and exploring, and then they're playing. And, and so it's all these underlying spirits that are deeply, deeply rooted in our biology, all coming to manifest themselves sequentially. 
and what you're doing when you socialize your children is you're trying to help meld all those sub-components into a functioning, a functioning psychological and social unity. And that's the emergence of a higher order. That's why you have the whole top part of your brain is to manage that. You can't get by on two-year-old impulsivity, even, even though each of those circuits each of those sub personalities have their limited utility they have to be melded together into something that can operate iteratively over a long period of time in a social collective and that's the, the okay i'm going to stop it here because um i have to change well basically i ran out of time not only have i run out of time on here but um, I've also run out of time. So what I'm going to do